Our speaker this evening is an unusual one to me. He's the only man I ever met who was a resident of Washington, D.C., who was born in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Most of them seem to migrate there. Dr. David Mearns is presently chief of the Manuscript Division and holder of the Chair of American History of the Library of Congress. Of course, he's had an, a very fine opportunity to get at the material, which um, is to be the basis of his speech. He attended George Washington University in Washington, <clears throat> University of Virginia. He's been on the staff of the Library of Congress since 1918 and has held a number of positions uh, during that time, holding the present position since 1951. He's written a number of books. He's past president of the Manuscript Society and a multitude of other societies dealing with Lincoln and the Civil War. Dr. Mearns will now address us on the Gettysburg Address, The Mysteries of the Manuscripts. Dr. Mearns. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, when I last wrote to Mr. Quess, I told him I was going to speak tonight about the five surviving holographs of the Gettysburg Address. And then I started to write about them. And when I got to three or four hundred pages, I decided that I'd gone far, far enough. So last night, I gave the first 300 pages to Milwaukee, and tonight I'll give the remaining 750 pages <laughs> to you. Uh, this is, in a very real sense, as I think Jay Nimps may recognize, a filibuster. But it seems to me that uh, <coughs> perhaps in the centennial year of the Gettysburg Address, it may be worthwhile to take a look at the holographs that have survived. And there are five. And I will speak of one and slide in the second while you're not looking, I hope. Of course, he, he went to Gettysburg and under considerable difficulty, finished an address that uh, he was dissatisfied with. And there are people who think that he wrote it out two or three times at Gettysburg, but if you study his chronology from the time he left Washington until he got back, he had only time to write it out once, I believe. Now, if I could see what I have before me, and this isn't the Manhattan telephone directory, really. <laughs> if its origins are obscure, the subsequent history of the manuscript would be for more than half a century, even more perplexing and bizarre. 
Chronologically considered, it begins with a letter written by David Wells to Mr. Lincoln on the Monday following the dedicatory exercises. On behalf of the states interested in the National Cemetery here, I request of you the original manuscript of the dedicatory remarks delivered by you here last Thursday. We desire them to be placed with the correspondence and other papers connected with the project. Please append your certificate to them. Did the President comply? For reasons or reasons unknown, he did not. But Nicolay, his secretary, supposed he had taken another course. Indeed, Nicolay wrote in the Century Magazine for February 1894, to comply with this request, the President re-examined his original draft and the version which had appeared in the newspapers and saw that because of the variations between them, the first seemed incomplete and the others imperfect. By his direction, therefore, his secretaries made copies of the Associated Press report as it was printed in several prominent newspapers, and comparing them with his original draft and with his own fresh recollection of the form in which he had delivered it, he made a new autograph copy, a careful and deliberate revision, which has become the standard and authentic text. Elsewhere in the text, in the article, Nicolay referred to this substitute as the revised copy made by the President a few days after his return to Washington <coughs> upon a careful comparison of his original draft and the printed newspaper version with his own recollection of the exact form in which he had delivered it. Mr. Nicolay was either misled, confused, or ignorant, perhaps all three. For John George Nicolay was absent from Washington from November 3rd until December 6th. During much of that time, the president was ill. And finally, if he did not execute another holograph, that seems entirely likely. It is certain that Mr. Wells never received it. Wells said that he had not. Nicolay knew that he had not. Edward McPherson had assured him before the publication of his article, I am quite confident that Mr. Lincoln did not, did not comply with the request made. Nicolay was again absent from Washington when Mr. Lincoln died. A reporter for the Sunday Morning Chronicle who called at the executive mansion on uh, April 15, 1865, was informed that Mr. Neal and Major Hay were arranging the papers of the late president. 
Edward D. Neal, who had succeeded the ailing William O. Stoddard as second assistant private secretary to the president, left this record of his experience on that mournful day. Just at dawn on Saturday morning, I was aroused from sleep by a loud pounding. And going down to the door of my country house and opening it, found the sergeant of the guard at the railroad who told me that the president and his cabinet had been shot, that all travel on the road from Washington had been stopped, and then he burst into tears. As no cars were allowed to run upon the tender of a locomotive, I rode to Washington and reached the White House about an hour after the president's body had arrived. A vast crowd was in the streets, a guard of soldiers at each gate, the halls of the mansion, ordinarily filled with visitors, were still, and everything seemed to weep. My position was lonely. Mr. John G. Nicolay, the principal secretary, was in Cuba. Major Hay, by the long watches of the night, was worn out and lay upon the sofa in his chamber so that the duty devolved upon me to read and dispose of all the papers that had accumulated in the office since Mr. Lincoln had been president and make such disposition of them as my judgment suggested. Few men's papers, he went on, can be found in this world as free from anything objectionable or sentiments which it would be desirable the public should not know as these. About 10 o'clock on Saturday night, Major Hay, who had recovered, came to me. Let it be interpolated that John Milton Hay, loyal and impeccable gentleman, had a high regard for the president's more noble utterances. Only five days before the assassination, and while Nicolay was on this journey to Cuba and the flag raising at Fort Sumter, Mr. Lincoln had presented the manuscript of his second inaugural to Major Hay. Singularly, however, the Gettysburg Address had seemed to impress him only faintly. He had heard it delivered and had then entered in his diary the president in a firm, free way with more grace than in his than Izzy's want, said his half dozen lines of consecration. Nicolay returned to Washington in the early afternoon of April 17th with Hay and presumably with Neil. He completed the arrangements for shipping the Lincoln papers to Illinois. 
ten years later, Mr. Lincoln was admitted to the select company to be found in John Bartlett's familiar quotations. An editorial in The Nation made this comment on the event. Out of all his homely sayings and public utterances still current or well remembered, Mr. Bartlett has properly chosen the concluding, the concluding sentences of the Gettysburg Address. It will be admitted that what promises to be the most classic and most enduring of American orations ought to be as carefully preserved without alteration or abridgment as a standard of weight or measurement. And few, we think, will deny that on the whole, Mr. Lincoln's comp composition was better than the Associated Press reporters. If his manuscript is still in existence, could it not be reproduced in facsimile? <coughs> that would have to wait for nearly 20 years. In 1874, the Lincoln Papers, upon Robert Lincoln's orders, were sent to John Nicolay in Washington, who, with his co-author John Hay, began their monumental biography, Abraham Lincoln, A History. As to the provenance of the Gettysburg Address, the subject came up in the fall of 1885, when David Wells, the same Wells of Gettysburg, wrote to Richard Watson Gilder, editor of the Century Magazine. I have several times seen the statement in print that Mr. Lincoln wrote his Gettysburg speech on the cars on the way from Washington to Gettysburg. And as this was not the fact, I propose to write an article for your journal and give all the facts about it. Mr. Lincoln was my guest when here on that occasion, and the speech was written here in my house. And I am familiar with all the facts about its preparation, as I was president of the Soldiers National Cemetery which he came here to assist in dedicating. He conferred with me all about it. Besides, I have a facsimile of a copy of that speech which he afterwards made and which I could have photographed and inserted in your magazine with the article. By way of warranty, Wells added a postscript Ex-Governor Curtin knows the speech was written in my house as he was here at the time. Mr. Gilder consulted Nicolay concerning Will's aspiration. Nicolay took a dim view of it, as he always did, when intruders sought trespass on his preserve. In this instance, he wrote, it is true that Mr. Lincoln wrote the Gettysburg Address 
but in part only, in Will's house. The original manuscript is now lying before my eyes. The copy which Mr. Wills has is one of several of the revision which Lincoln made after his return to Washington. I have also the manuscript notes of the, of the revision before me. Mr. Wills, therefore, is not familiar with all the facts. All that he has, which is new, is probably only what he recollects. This might or might not be useful in completing or rounding out our knowledge. It will probably add nothing very material. Thus, the location of the first draft as of September 19th, 1885, is established. Before the end of the year, Damon Nicolay would write to his Pythias Hay, asking for a loan. Hay, who had prospered largely by contracting a favorable marriage, cheerfully complied. <laughs> In September and October 1893, officers of the century were dunning Nicolay for his promised article on the address. Nicolay grumbled at the deadline, I will do my best to get ready as soon as I can. Though whether I can meet your wish for February, I do not feel so confident. My daughter's time and all the strength of eyesight I can muster must necessarily be given to proofreading on volume two of the works. And an additional amanuensis, whom I expected October 1st, cannot come to me until about November 1st. Still, I will see what can be done. Somehow he made it. But conflicting pressures and physical frailty probably exacted this cost of accuracy. On October 30th, 1893, C.C. Buell, the magazine's associate editor, wrote to Nicolay, I now send proofs of the facsimile of the Gettysburg speech. Early in the new year, Robert Lincoln wrote to Nicolay, John Hay has told me of your and his wishing to keep some souvenirs. In the month in which Nicolay's Gettysburg article was published, Edward Marshall in the New York press reported a visit to his home. His workroom, so ran the account, with its great desk and many bookcases, is a place in which the present is not known. There are gathered all the Lincoln manuscripts in existence. Some of them are owned by Mr. Nicolay. Most of them are the property of the Lincoln family. The morning of my visit, he showed me many of them. 
There are thousands in all, and the contents and history of each was ready to his tongue almost without a glance of identification. They were filed away in great manila envelopes. As to the century essay, whatever its faults, failures, and fabrications may have been, they were completely lost on Robert Lincoln. He read it on a train bound for California and found it as he put it, admirably clear in tracing the composition of the speech. Now comes that irrepressible and forgetful editor, author, soldier, agent, and collector, James Grant Wilson, who reopened the question on July 13, 1896, when he wrote to Nicolay asking, Will you oblige me by stating if there are any original manuscripts and in whose possession of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and his second inaugural, the latter I had the great privilege and pleasure of hearing delivered. Nicolay replied from Holderness, uh, New Hampshire, six days later. The original draft of the Gettysburg Address, of which I published a facsimile in the century 18 months or two years ago, is in Washington in my custody. The original of the second inaugural is also in Washington in the possession of Colonel Hay. But Wilson repeated the question four years later. Nicolay's reply dated April 7th, 1900. And please remember 1900. Declared you're quite right in your recollection that the president read his second inaugural and that he used spectacles. Colonel Hay possesses the original manuscript and I have the original Gettysburg Address. For John Hay, now Secretary of State, the year 1901 was filled with tragedy. His son, Adelbert, died in June. His president, William McKinley, died on September 14th. His boon companion, John George Nicolay, died September 26. Throughout Nicolay's terminal illness, Secretary Hay had expressed his concern and solicitude in many ways. Only two days before the end came to Nicolay, Hay's private secretary, E.J. Babcock, reported to him, I sent up your note to Miss Nicolay Sunday morning, and she wrote the answer, which I left at your house before seeing me. She told me that she had stated in her note the condition of her father. She was evidently much worried, but we had a pleasant talk. I called again this morning. 
and told her as strongly as I could that I was sure that she would be doing you a very great favor by calling on you as, uh, exactly as she would on her own father and would be doing me as, uh, uh, doing me a greater favor by making any possible use of me. She was very grateful to you. As to money, she said that she did not know that she would need any, but was very glad to know that there was no necessity for worrying about it. She said that her father was much improved this morning, and while she was afraid to indulge in much hope, the doctor had told her that there was a glimmer. I assured her that you were as deeply interested in her father as you could be in a very dear brother, and asked her permission to call every day. She thought this was not necessary, but promised me that if anything should occur, meaning the death of her father, she would send at once for me. She told me that her father had been in bed for four months, and this gave me the opportunity to speak of his possible death and the necessary proceedings afterwards. She spoke very freely about this and promised faithfully to call upon me in that event. Unless this should occur, I doubt if she will make any use of me though I will call there as often as I think I can do so without bothering her. She said that she was going to write to you today. There can be no doubting the deep devotion which lasted through the years between John Nicolay and John Hay, but it is necessary perhaps, constantly to be reminded that Hay had a brilliant life beyond Lincoln, whereas Nicolay had not. At the height of the McClure controversy, John Russell Young contributed a sensitive article to Philadelphia's Evening Star which sharpened the character differences of the two men. I should wrote Young dissent in cold justice from some of the estimates placed upon Mr. Nicolay. The tendency to dismiss him as a kind of upper servant. Nicolay had the close, methodical, silent German way about him Scrupulous, polite, calm, obliging, with the gift of hearing other people, like the, uh, with the gift of hearing other people talk, coming and going about the capital like a shadow, with the soft, sad smile that seemed to come only from the eyes. <coughs> Prompt as lightning to take a hint or an idea upon whom a suggestion 
was never lost, and if it meant a personal service, sure the prompt, spontaneous return. A man without excitements or emotions, never saying anything worth quoting, and in that regard, invaluable as a private secretary. <coughs> Young, in contrast, described Hay as exceedingly handsome, a slight, graceful, boyish figure, girl and boy's clothing, clothing, as I heard in a sniff from some angry politician who had perhaps been compelled to lower his feet from an executive table. <laughs> brilliant with the promise which has since ripened into splendid fulfillment, chivalrous, independent, with opinions on most questions and expressing them, a good deal in society, writing verses which it was my sacred privilege at times to hear in the silence of removed White House chambers a poetic nature, thought one time of being an orange planter because of the poetry in the orange. Proud of army associations with a passionate love for the memory of the fated Ellsworth in whom he saw Napoleonic possibilities, reserved likewise with just a shade of pride that did not make Acquaintanceship spontaneous, honest as sunshine, as strong and brave as the seas. This young thinker, who combined the genius for romance and politics as no one in my time since Disraeli was suited for his place in the president's family. When Nicolay died, Hay turned his generous attentions to the surviving daughter, Helen Nicolay. He transferred to her all of his Lincoln royalties and copyrights. He relieved her of responsibility for the care and security of the Lincoln papers while storing them temporarily, subject to Robert Lincoln's order, in the Department of State. And on Monday, December 2nd, 1901, he wrote to his wife, I went up to see Helen Nicolay yesterday. She kept me two hours talking about her book, and I brought away a great pile of stuff to look over for a few nights. She seemed so small and desolate, and yet she looks at life cheerily, I think. She ought to rent her house and go abroad. I felt a craven feeling of relief when I found that she did not expect to come and live with us. <laughs> it may have been on that occasion that Secretary Hay raised the question as to the whereabouts of the manuscript of the first draft of the Gettysburg Address. She gained the impression from him 
that it had belonged to her father, not in his capacity as custodian of the Lincoln Papers, but outright as his personal property. Helen Nicolay ransacked the house, went through the contents of a safety deposit vault, and had conducted a search of the materials then deposited in the Department of State, but all to no avail. The original manuscript had dropped from sight. Its residing place was unknown and would continue to be unknown for many years. This was a source of unremitting embarrassment to Miss Nicolay. From New York, James Grant Wilson wrote to her on January 14th, 1903. Should you have any thought of parting with the Gettysburg Address or other Lincoln treasures collected by my friend, your father, I should be glad if they could pass to my friend, Major William Harrison Lambert who possesses, I believe, the largest Lincoln collection in the world. He is a liberal gentleman and would be particularly pleased to acquire the original of the Gettysburg Address. Six days later, Helen Nicolay responded with his stiff and criminally evasive message. Illness has prevented my replying to your note. The Lincoln manuscripts as a whole belong to the Honorable Robert Lincoln and are at present deposited in the State Department, where it would seem most fitting that they should be allowed to remain. As for the very few bits of President Lincoln's writing owned by my father, I have at present no desire to part with them. Long after Wilson would recall this dismissal or summary brush-off with a new twist for the benefit of the New York Times. Some years ago he wrote, a, a gentleman told me that if Miss Helen Nicolay would give it the first draft, he would pay $5,000 for it. It was a somewhat delicate matter. Before approaching her, I made inquiries among her friends and found that it would be out of the question to suggest such a thing to her, that uh, she would be offended. I never did. Sometime afterwards, the manuscript was lost or stolen and nothing has been heard of it since. Fortunately, a facsimile had been made before its loss. As the Lincoln Centennial approached, Miss Nicolay's distress and dismay mounted. Robert Lincoln, who was receiving many inquiries on Nandy's father's remarks at Gettysburg, wrote to her on March 7, 1908, seeking permission to reprint her father's century article on the subject. 
In the autumn of that year, specifically on October 31st, the oblivious James Grant Wilson returned to the fray, writing to her, May I be permitted to ask who is the fortunate possessor of the precious original manuscript of the Gettysburg Address at present? It is, as I understand, in your keeping. My purpose in making the inquiry is to learn if it can be obtained for a Lincoln Long exhibition at Columbia University, contemplated by the Centenary Committee appointed by the Mayor of New York, of which Mr. Joseph H. Choate is the chairman. If for any reason the owner of the priceless relic does not desire his or her name made public, it may be confided to me confidentially and with a view to preferring the above-mentioned request. This time, Miss Nicolay responded more candidly. I very much wish I could answer your question as to the whereabouts of the original manuscript of the Gettysburg Address. It was given by Mr. Lincoln to my father and should now belong to me as his heir. When a search was made for it after my father's death, it could not be found. My impression is that it was put inadvertently among the manuscripts, which did not belong to my father, but were only in his custody. They were returned to their owner, the Honorable Robert Lincoln, shortly after my father's death. I did not know at that time that the Gettysburg manuscript belonged to my father personally, but was such but was told so by Secretary Hay several weeks after the transfer had been made. The boxes containing the manuscripts were then stored at the State Department, and I asked him to have the search made, which, as before stated, was fruitless. For obvious reasons, I hesitated to go to Mr. Robert Lincoln after the boxes were sent to him and asked to be allowed to go through them myself. I am still hoping to find the precious manuscript among my father's papers, but as yet its whereabouts is a mystery. Three days later, Wilson wrote to inform her, I have written to Mr. Lincoln, that is, Robert Lincoln, asking for the address, and should I learn that it is in his pos possession, I shall take pleasure in promptly informing you. But on that same November 6th, Robert Lincoln wrote to the distraught Helen Nicolay, we are having a great many inquiries at this time, about matters relating to my father, and I venture to trouble you to ask whether you know where the original manuscript of the Gettysburg Address is, <laughs> which your father used in the Century article. 
He must have had it at the time because there are lithographic copies of the two separate parts of the address. Miss Nicolay confessed on November 9th. I do not know where the original manuscript of the Gaysburg address is. It is a mystery that has puzzled and distressed me for a long time. Now that you have asked me, I am going to tell you the whole story. As you are aware, the Lincoln manuscripts were in my father's custody at the time of his death. As soon as possible thereafter, I turned them over to Secretary Hay to be restored to you. I did not know at that time what Mr. Hay told me shortly after the transfer was made, that your father gave my father the original manuscript of the Gettysburg Address, and that it was therefore his private property. I immediately searched through his papers, but failed to find it. I had from the moment of Mr. Hay telling me an impression more or less indistinct of finding an important Lincoln manuscript, which one I cannot say, in a place apart from the rest, thinking it was out of its place and putting it with the others. I told Mr. Hay this and asked him, he having the keys to the boxes, which were then at the State Department, to have a search made. How thorough his search was, I have no means of knowing. It resulted in nothing. After the boxes <coughs> were, were returned to you, I naturally hesitated to go to you and asked to be allowed to go through the boxes in the hope of extracting one of the most valuable documents. So the matter has rested. Every time I work among my father's papers, I hope to find it. And failing that, I hope it is in your possession. Robert Lincoln acknowledged this avowal on November 12th. I am very sorry indeed to learn that you do not know where the original manuscript of the Gettysburg Address now is. While I did not know it, I suppose that you, what you tell me, that my father had given it to your father. I did not wish, of course, in any way to obtain it for myself. But I thought it might be an interesting object in the temporary exhibition which is to be made in New York City on the anniversary of his birth next year. The papers that you sent Mr. Hay have been in my possession here in Chicago for a good while and have been gone over, as it is thought, piece by piece, and I am, and I am assured that particular document is not among them. I do not need to assure you that if in the course of future examinations it is found, it will be considered as belonging to you, but I have little hope of such good fortune. 
At the urging of Helen Nicolay and Robert Lincoln, a search for the missing manuscript was conducted in the archives of the Century Company, but no trace of it was found. And then, almost simultaneously and providentially, Clara Stone Hay, widow of John Hay, discovered what appeared to be the draft of the address among her husband's papers. Helen Nicolay's vast sense of relief was mitigated by blushing mortification. Her mnemonic powers had failed her altogether. She had unwittingly aspersed her father's dearest friend and her own benefactor. Hurriedly, on December 2nd, 1908, she wrote to Robert Lincoln, Mrs. Hay tells me she has written you about finding the Gaysburg address. I need not tell you how relieved at its discovery I am. The banner of its discovery shows that I was all wrong in my belief that it was given to my father. It was evidently another manuscript to which Mr. Hay referred in the conversation I wrote you about. I am distressed that I, have sh that I should have made such a mistake. To Gilder, the Century Company, she wrote on December 8th in tones still more contrite, Mrs. Hay's letter telling you in confidence about the finding of the Gaysburg manuscript must have reached you this morning. I wrote a letter to you on the same subject the moment she told me of its discovery, but at her request did not send it, as she seemed to prefer not to tell anybody else until she had heard from Robert Lincoln. When she found out yesterday how very much I had the matter at heart, she wrote to you at, at once, sending me a copy of her letter after she had mailed it. It was sweet and generous of her, but the dear lady has missed the very central point so far as my relation to the matter is concerned. This, of course, is that I have told you and Mr. Robert Lincoln and General Wilson as a positive fact, something that this discovery proves to be wrong. Of course, I did it in good faith, and up to the moment of the finding of this manuscript, bound like the other Lincoln manuscripts owned by Mr. Hay, I was absolutely certain of my statement about the missing Gettysburg Address. I now have no clue to what manuscript it was and no assurance that my friends at the Century and others to whom I have told this tale will ever believe anything I may say again. My poor little reputation for historical accuracy seems to have gone to the winds. May I rely on you as a friend to think the best you can of me. <coughs> but four days later, Miss Nicolay had regained her composure and self-confidence. She wrote to Mrs. Harry, I have not been able to stop thinking about it. 
And the result of my meditation is not sharing. I have come to the conclusion that yours is not the original draft after all, but an experimental draft made at Washington immediately before or after Lincoln came home, or at the time he wrote out his copy for the Baltimore Fair. My reasons are these. One, the variations from the facsimile printed by my father, both in the position of words on the line and the lack of letter heading. Two, the facts stated by my father, page five of the magazine article, that he saw Mr. Lincoln write out the latter portion in pencil on a piece of paper different in color from the first sheet. Three, on page three, my father speaks of a revised copy by Mr. Lincoln after returning to Washington. Upon a careful comparison of his original draft with the printed newspaper version and his own recollection of the exact form in which he delivered it. For the manuscript you found the other day is probably the first trial of his hand at a revised version. The Baltimore copy, the final outcome of it. You will notice that they seem to be written on the same kind of paper. Five, this theory will account for you and Mr. Henry Adams. Uh, Mrs. Hay and Henry Adams were working on Hay's diary at the time. This theory will account for you and Mr. Adams thinking you had found the second Gettysburg Address. This coincides with my recollection of the color, looks, uh, that is to say, of the manuscript my father had, and explains, perhaps, my conversation with your husband about a Lincoln manuscript. I am awfully sorry, but after milling over it a night and a day, I see no other conclusion. And then almost exultantly, Miss Nicolay wrote to Gilder, the original is as much lost as ever. This second discovery gives my recollection of the conversation with Secretary Hay about a Lincoln manuscript, another show of veracity. But I'd rather be proved wrong by the original manuscript than not to know what has become of it. James Grant Wilson reproduced the so-called Hay Draft in his centennial article published in Putnam's Magazine for February 1909. There it was captioned, facsimile of Abraham Lincoln's first autographed copy of the Gettysburg Address as actually delivered, made for John Hay on the President's return from the dedicatory exercises, and now first photographed and engraved. In the text of the article, Wilson declared, on his return to Washington, at the request of Major Hay, the president wrote down what he had actually said. 
this precious document is really the, the genuine original of the Gettysburg Address as delivered. But four years later, Grant would change his pitch again. The hate copy, he declared, is the one he intended to take to Gettysburg and read. But when he came to leave the White House, he could not find it and took along instead the rougher draft he afterward gave to Nicolay. Poor Wilson. He had presumably allowed himself to be persuaded by his patron, Major Lambert, who had reached the extraordinary conclusion that the manuscript was written before November 19, 1863, and that it was inadvertently left at Washington. This is preposterous. There is no shred of evidence to support it. But it is no less absurd than the Reverend William E. Barton's assumption that the hay draft was the reading copy. At this juncture, it may be well to emphasize three points. One, Mr. Nicolay never knew that Mr. Hay possessed a manuscript copy of the Gettysburg Address. Two, Mr. Hayes seems not to have exhibited his copy during Mr. Nicolay's lifetime. Three, Helen Nicolay did not learn of its, of its existence until late November or early December 1908. An anonymous article entitled Celebrities at Home, published in the Republic, Washington, for Sunday morning, April 24, 1887, contained this statement. Colonel Harry has in his possession many interesting relics of the days of Lincoln. One of the most valuable of these is the manuscript copy of the President's second and most important inaugural address. Also, the printed copy, which he read from the steps of the Capitol. The proof slip used by the president is corrected in a number of places, but there was no mention of the Gettysburg Address. And yet, W. Howe Phillips, on April 7, 1897, sent to Colonel Hay a list of 16 books and manuscripts belonging to the colonel which were then in the keeping of Washington's National Safe Deposit Savings and Trust Company. Among them were such rare as Tennyson's original autographed manuscript of the dedication of his poems to the Queen, a manuscript of Walt Whitman's O Captain, My Captain, a fair copy of Maryland, My Maryland, in the holograph of its author, James Ryder Randall, the manuscript of Henry Adams, Buddha, and Brahma, and the manuscript of the Gettysburg Address. Near the close of 1904, however, when Secretary Hay was about to depart for Europe in search of health, he gave information to Henry Sweetser Burridge concerning what, de what was described as the final revision of President Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, which was then in his possession. 
Hay died July 1st, 1905. When Burridge's book appeared in the following year, it contained a statement that ownership of the manuscript had passed to the Hay family. Burridge's Gettysburg and Lincoln must have escaped Miss Nicolay's notice. There is, moreover, evidence that between Nicolay's death and his own, Secretary Hay occasionally displayed this remarkable memento. Nelson Thomason, a Chicago real estate broker, wrote to Senator Elihu Root, February 21, 1913. The last time I was in the home of my cousin, Colonel Hay, late Secretary of State, he showed me the original manuscript of this speech, written by the late president himself, and he remarked at that time that Lincoln wrote it out immediately after his return from Gettysburg and presented it to Mr. Hay so that it could go down to time in the language that he had then written. It is extremely difficult to understand how it happened that Mrs. Hay did not discover the draft until the closing days of 1908. Others seem to have known earlier that she had it. George Sidney Hammond, for example, in his autobiography, Lanes of Memory, thus described an episode that took place in 1907. I was at the time collecting manuscripts for the library of Pierpont Morgan. Though deep sentiments of family affection were like his strong loyalty and friendship, potent factors in Mr. Morgan's actions and reactions, his outstanding characteristic was his dominating will. He was temperamentally the aristocrat and the autocrat, and as such he appealed to the popular imagination rather than to the popular sympathy. With all his patriotic belief in American institutions, and despite the largesse of his public benefactions, he was undemocratic. And there is thus the interest of paradox in the fact that the American he seemed most to admire, and certainly whose manuscripts he was most ardent in collecting, was Abraham Lincoln. One of his comparatively few disappointments as a collector was his inability to acquire the original manuscript of the Gettysburg Address, which Lincoln gave to John Hay. For this brief paper, written, so the legend goes, while on the train which was carrying Lincoln to the resting place of Civil War soldiers, Mr. Morgan is said to have offered $50,000, a sum which, had Mrs. Hay accepted it, would have established probably for all time the highest price paid for a sheet of literary manuscript. That's what Helen said. In the archives of the Morgan Library, there is a letter written to Mr. Helen from Joy Cottage, Aiken, South Carolina, postmarked March 1, 1907, by John Hay's daughter, Helen Hay Whitney. It reads, 
I find myself at the time of mentioning the Lincoln speech that, is, that it is now in the possession of my mother. And not one member of the family could imagine selling it for any inconceivable price. I was surprised at the market value, but its value to us is so much greater that there will never be, now or at any other time, the slightest chance of, it, of its going into any other hand. In 1913, when the Senate committee was seeking to establish the text of the address, Mrs. Hay wrote to Elihu Root. I have the copy referred to in the safe deposit, but I also have an exact reproduction by photograph of the original which is now in the possession of Miss Nicolay. And if the committee wished to examine that reproduction, she will let them have it. Or if they insist on seeing the, uh, the original, I will get it out of storage on my return to Washington from Georgia. As late as April 1916, Clarence Hay, the son of Secretary Hay, would be writing about the the draft to the Reverend Orton H. Carmichael. I have spoken with Miss Helen Nicolay and with Mr. Robert Lincoln, and it is fairly certain that the copy was made after Mr. Lincoln's return from Gettysburg. It was probably composed by the President when he was trying to record the address as he had delivered it, and before he had carefully studied the press account. I'm coming close to the end, John. <laughs> this invites speculation. Be it remembered that Mr. Nicolay never saw the Hay draft, that Mr. Nicolay was not in Washington when the request came from David Wells for the original manuscript of the dedicatory remarks, that Mr. Nicolay supposed that Mr. Lincoln had complied and that Mr. Hay was in Europe and, in consequence, unavailable for consultation when Mr. Nicolay prepared his Gettysburg article. Consider now the strange case of the Great Western Sanitary Fair in Cincinnati. George McLaughlin of the Fairs Committee on Autographs on December 3, 1863, wrote to Ohio Senator John Sherman, asking him to support a request to the president for an historic manuscript which would be raffled for the benefit of the soldiers and sailors. McLaughlin explained, at one time I thought of jocularly requesting him to issue a new proclamation and furnish, it, and furnish us with the manuscript so that we might be placed on an equality with Chicago. On December 10th, 63, Senator Sherman informed McLaughlin that a document had been selected, that the original had been mutilated, and that the president had agreed to make a fair copy of it. On December 14th, McLaughlin replied, it would probably be preferable to have the original draft, though in fragments, 
if it could be procured. The erasures and alterations make it much more valuable as an historical curiosity than a clear, fair copy. And on December 15th, Senator Sherman wrote, I have the pleasure to send you the autographed copy of the recent amnesty and, Re and reconstruction proclamation of the president. The whole in the handwriting of the president with all the additions, erasures, and alterations. Your circular was received about the time this proclamation was issued. And regarding it as a document of the highest historical interest, and wishing to advance to the utmost the noble purpose of the fair, I, with Mr. Wade, waited on the president and requested the original copy of this document. He very cordially met our wishes. But as the original copy had been somewhat defaced, he kindly offered to copy it himself, retaining all the marks, erasures, notes, and additions. <laughs> he said that if a good deal of additional labor by him would relieve the sufferings of a single soldier, he would cheerfully perform it. This incident, be it noted, occurred only a few weeks after the delivery of the Gettysburg Address. With this precedent in mind, is it not possible to imagine that Mr. Lincoln may have executed a seeming original manuscript from Mr. Wills? that for reasons of his own, he decided not to send it, and that instead he gave it to John Hay, at the same time enjoining him to say nothing about it to Nicolay, who took such pride in the first draft. It will be recalled that the Hay copy, when discovered in 1908, was bound like the other Lincoln manuscripts owned by Mr. Hay. This makes more dramatic, I think, a memorandum addressed to whom it may concern by Helen Nicolay, which is now in the Lincoln National Life Foundation. It reads, from 1908 to 1916, there was considerable uncertainty and much correspondence about the whereabouts of the original copy of the Gettysburg Address, which seemed to have vanished completely. Mrs. Hay and I were especially distressed about it. On March 9, 1916, Mrs. Hay, John Hay's daughter, and I, while looking over manuscripts in her possession, found that all the worry had been needless. For Colonel Hay had the original draft with Mr. Lincoln's final version set in, uh, bound in the sumptuous red Morocco he used for his collection of important manuscripts. Behold, I show you a mystery. By what chain of accidents and mischances, by what depths of incomprehension, confusion, and misunderstanding, by what act of carelessness and by what failure of recognition, of recognition had it been overlooked so long? 
The participants in this case were, without exception, honorable, innocent, and informed. Certainly, Mr. Hay had not attempted to conceal it. Carlton E. Sanford, president of the People's Bank of Potsdam, New York, had written to Secretary Hay on August 28, 1903, asking for comments on a little history of the Gettysburg Address, which he had, compared for, uh, which he had composed for eventual delivery before GAR encampment. And Secretary Hay had replied that he owned two drafts of the address in Mr. Lincoln's handwriting. Both manuscripts were given to the American people in 1916 when the children of John Hay presented them to the Library of Congress. They are perhaps the greatest treasures of the great national institution. Thank you for your patience. Thank you, Dr. Burns, for this address. I might say that our fellow member, Congressman Fred Swingle from Iowa, has sent us a telegram here. It's in praise of Dr. Burns and says, please extend my greetings and best wishes to all our mutual friends. And Dr. Burns, before we go into the usual question and answer period, the committee on awards has asked us to give to you this honorary membership, the certificate conferred upon David Chambers Mearns for creative scholarship as an historian and for meritorious services in perpetuating the traditions of our common country, together with the membership in the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. Now, gentlemen, just before I uh, turn on the question and answer period, I did forget another good, another good member of ours, Dr. Hazlitt, who many of you know, uh, is ill. I have his address here. He would like to hear from you. He's rather lonely, I guess, in this period of his illness. Now we turn to the questions about the speech which Mr. Dr. Mearns has made here. Is anyone here any question that they would like to bring up? or any comment to make about manuscripts. Yes. Didn't Robert Todd Lincoln hold a lot of the papers that we're talking about in his vault in 50 years He deposited all of the Lincoln papers in the Library of Congress with the understanding that they should not be open until 21 years after his death, which occurred on July 26, 1946. There were no Lincoln, uh, the Gettysburg Address was not in there. No, we had the Gettysburg Address already. <laughs> Are there any other questions here? Yes, Pete? Dave, how if you cast some uh, very interesting comment on the second, so-called second copy. Uh, does this mean that you feel then that it was the first copy that Lincoln had or the second copy? 
<laughs> well, I'm but sorry. If you got any such false impression. <laughs> well, no, I, just, uh, I, I think the second copy was prepared for David Wills and never sent. In other words, he used the first, Lincoln used the first copy. That's right. Anyone else? Did Mr. Lincoln, I would ask, make any other copies other than these two? Oh, he made three more. He made three more. Would you care to state where they are? Yes. Uh, the first and second are in the Library of Congress. The third is in Springfield. Uh, that is the so-called Everett copy in the Illinois State Historical Library. The Bancroft copy is in Cornell. And the Bliss sent us copy is now in the White House. Was that the one that was in Cuba for a while? Yeah, that's the one. Anybody else have a question? Yes? I, I may not have heard this, um, but the Wills uh, document, does this represent any editing of the original? It, it's an extraordinary document, sir. It cancels words and restores words that appears in the first draft. Now, I don't know what to make of that. Unless it was deliberately made to represent uh, uh, the original manuscript, as Mr. Wells had requested. Well, then, uh, the, the wording of the address as it is commonly known today would be uh, would be closer to the Wills copy or closer to the copy that uh, uh, that appeared in the century. The, the uh, standard text is the Bliss Sentence copy, which is now in the White House, the fifth draft. Reuben Flax, did you have a question? Well, I think the answer is I would want to know uh, the one that we know in the school books. Which, uh, the, the, that's the, the fifth draft. The other way, the one that we know in the school books, and is not, we don't know whether that's the actual speech that was really made. No, but that's the way Mr. Lincoln wanted it to be known. Well, I mean, I mean that's, see, that, well, that's the historical problem that we always had. Always. Uh, what we find in the books, was that what actually happened, you see? No one knows what actually. I say we always have that problem. Yeah. Yes, always. Is anyone else? Somebody else? Oh yes, now Homer Gertz. Yeah. Uh, would you give your explanation, if you can, as to why the senior secretary did not get such documents, the second inaugural, the Gettysburg Address, and other great utterances of Lincoln, where the junior uh, did? Could it be that some of the things that he had really belonged to Nicolay and just in the scramble got mixed up? Uh, Albert, uh, you're an autograph collector. <laughs> and you know that autograph collectors never behave quite correctly in front of I was waiting very, very uh, uh, interestedly. I thought you were going to say that when uh, John Nicolay came on his very lean days and uh, asked his very dear friend for a loan, that his friend had said, 
yes, by all means, take the loan. I would like to have the original copy. It was precisely for that reason that I left the matter hanging in midair. You think that that might have occurred? I don't know. The Chicago Historical Society had an interest in the Hicks portrait of Lincoln, which it uh, got from the Senate's estate at the same time that the fifth copy went to the White House. Do I understand that you have some belief, this comes by a roundabout way, that the copy in Springfield may represent the original text? Uh, there is a gentleman in Washington who is sure that it does represent the original text. And uh, I differ with him. I don't see how it is possible that the uh, Springfield copy could have been the reading copy, but he is welcome to his opinion, and perhaps I am to mine. I don't think Lincoln had time to write it out more than once before he delivered it, but that's my feeling. Dr. Mearns, may I ask, how many of these five copies have the words under God? Which ones? Third, fourth, and fifth. Are there any other questions? I asked a question. I'd like to Excuse get me, an answer. Uh, when uh, did uh, Secretary Hay bind the various Lincoln documents? Is there evidence as to their being bound at one time and when? Well, <laughs> as I said, the second copy, second draft, when discovered, was bound according to Helen Nicolai like the other important manuscripts. And then when the uh, first draft was rediscovered in 1916, the two were bound together. Well, I have seen the binding, and there is no evidence of tipped-in pages. And the binding is identical with the binding of his copy of Maryland by Maryland, which he received in 1887, as I remember. Gentlemen, the meeting stands adjourned. See you the 22nd of next.